Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Leah Vincent. Her memoir is called Cut Me Loose, and it's published by Nantalise Doubleday. And I'm delighted to have you on the podcast today, Leah. Thank you for having me. So in this memoir, you talk about growing up in a very ultra-Orthodox background and then getting away from that in adulthood. I want to sort of lay the context for our listeners a little bit and talk a little bit about your family's religious background. Sure. Religious Judaism can be organized and subdivided in many ways, just like Christianity or Islam can. The way I talk about it in the book and the way I kind of see it is that you have Orthodox, conservative, and Reformed Jews and a couple other smaller groups. And within Orthodoxy, there are three main groups. There are the modern Orthodox, and these are people who are very committed to religious life, but also try to assimilate into modern culture. They'll go to college, they'll have careers. Women, they increasingly try to give women positions of empowerment within the constraints of a very traditional religious life. Then you have the Hasidic ultra-Orthodox Jews, which may be because of Hollywood's sort of romanticization of these people who look so different and seem so unusual. People who are not familiar with Jewish communities tend to know. You know, they have the side curls and they speak Yiddish often and a very distinctive dress. And then you have what I call and what I was raised to call the yeshivish Jews, who are ultra-Orthodox, very fervently strict and almost fundamentalist, or definitely fundamentalist, but not Hasidic. And they, too, really keep the outside world at bay and they really adhere to what they believe is a very strict interpretation of biblical and Talmudic law. One of the big defining features is that men and women are kept really separate, and women have very defined roles in that community. It's called the yeshivish community because our lives in that community really revolve around the yeshiva, which is the school where men study uh, ancient texts for many years past a traditional you know, secular education. And the men who study these texts are really revered in our community. And one of the things that struck me as I was reading the initial chapters is you talk a little bit about how you were certainly raised to believe that this is the way that it's always been, this is the one true faith, but yeshivish faith seems to be a fairly recent development. Yeah, this was something that I only kind of came to awareness about in the past two or three years that really blew my mind, that I had been told that, you know, the way we practice is authentic Judaism, as opposed to all the newfangled reform and conservative and non-Orthodox people, that we do things the way it was done by our grandparents and our great-grandparents and all the way back to Moses, that we have really kept that authentic tradition. And I discovered, as I learned more about the world and more about Judaism, that that is not true, that Judaism, religious Judaism 100 years ago did not look the same as yeshivish Judaism, and that, in fact, this whole movement of yeshivish Judaism with many of its distinctive features was something that really happened after the Holocaust that was really developed by some of the refugees, some of the rabbinic refugees after the Holocaust who came to the United States, and a lot of American men and the women they married, who really wanted to revive what had been lost. But I think whenever you revive something that's lost, you can never replicate the original, and sometimes you get mutations that really start to warp what you have. But well, yes, what I, I talk about a little bit in the book, that this realization sort of starting to put the pieces of the puzzle together, that my dad, for example, was not raised in the same kind of home that I was raised in, that he called his father dad, not Tati, which is the Yiddish word that we used, that he had a television, and that he mixed with girls, and... You know, my mother went to public school in her youth, and these kind of ideas, which I knew little fragments of, but because this concept of, like, this is the way it's always been was so big, I can never put together, I started to put together, and it was really amazing to realize this is really a pretty new evolution of a community, a pretty new 
mutation. And you've kind of hinted already at some of the effects that this environment had on you growing up, but let's get you know into more specifics about what this upbringing meant for you as a girl and then as an adolescent growing up, because you've already mentioned that there are very strictly defined roles for, for girls and women in this sect. For me as a girl, I was completely focused on my marriage, which would happen I would start dating probably when I was about 18, and these would be arranged dates. They would not be romantic in nature, and then I would be paired up with somebody. And if we got along together and we thought we were compatible, we'd say yes, and we'd get married. And that was really the goal of my life, to be married and to become a wife and a mother. One of the most important ways to achieve that goal was to make sure that I was being modest, because that's really, I felt, the defining role as a girl was to stay modest and to stay obedient and to stay unobtrusive. From my perspective and my upbringing, that really was what, defined our lives as girls and women. There are a million <laughs> rules about modesty, and this is all physical modesty, aimed to really ensure that women stay co covered up. And for me as a girl, really sent this message that I had this hugely powerful and frightening sexuality, almost like a monster sexuality, that needed to constantly be protected and tamed and covered up to ensure that I didn't cause men to sin. And so there were a lot of rules about how we dressed and rules about girls not speaking loudly in front of men. We weren't allowed to sing in front of men. I think that this also was one of the reasons why girls weren't in leadership, women, sorry, weren't in leadership positions in the community. Part of it was bound by certain laws, but part of it was the idea that women should not be out in the sort of limelight the way that men are. When you hit adolescence and started going through, I mean, the, the kinds of normal rebellious nature that any adolescence goes through. Given the constraints that you were under, the pushback that you got from your parents was that much harder. Oh, I think so. I mean, adolescence is so bewildering, I think, in the best of circumstances. And, you know, when I think about my life, so much has changed since the time I talk about in the book, some that's hard for me to remember, but I can remember so vividly what it felt like to be 14 and to feel so physically alive in my body and realize that I, I had to keep it all at bay. I was a regular hormonal teenager and I just felt terrified by myself. I felt betrayed by myself that my body had developed. It was like I was disgusted by it. I know that a lot of teenagers who grow up in circumstances that aren't open face this kind of dilemma also, like where you, you aren't prepared for this crazy thing that happens to you. And it can be really overwhelming to know how to navigate waking up one day and realizing like you're different than the person you were your whole childhood. And if the adults in your life aren't encouraging of your developments, you know, emotionally, physically, whatever is going on for you, it can be incredibly unbalancing and, and frightening. Part of that unbalancing, as, as you write about, was that, you know, you hit adolescence and they try to ship you off to religious schools to straighten you out <laughs> and doesn't take. And it seems like at 17, they just write you off. Yeah. As I'm reading Cut Me Loose, one of the most stunning things in there is that you're 17 years old and you've basically been sent to New York City and told to get a job and start paying your own rent and you're on your own at 17. Mm -hmm. it's, I look at that from, I mean, maybe you know, a kind of sheltered perspective, but it just strikes me as crazy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think about 17-year-olds I know now, and it just blows my mind. Like, I was that young and I was alone. And, and I think what was so crazy about it was partly being alone and also not knowing what to do next. Like if I had been alone but given some support and, you know, my life would have continued as I wanted it to because even at that point, although I was rebellious, I wanted to get married. And if I had the feeling like, oh, I'm going to get married soon, it will all work out, I think it would have been one thing. But I was alone and felt like I was suddenly all the strings had been cut. I felt like a puppet whose strings had been cut. You know, suddenly I just didn't know what to do with myself or what to 
do or where to go or you know and my parents had raised me to be pretty independent and in, in sort of self-sufficient and you know not feel sorry for myself and so I, I managed to get things together practically but emotionally and socially it was overwhelming totally overwhelming to think about how to navigate life at that age one of the things that happens in I think everybody's life is that when you go through things that are so big like this and they're unexpected you don't realize what you're going through until you look back I didn't have a context to place it in I didn't understand I just was just in this state of constant overwhelmness. I mean, as we see in the book, a lot of the negative feelings I was experiencing ended up being directed at myself because I didn't have a context to understand that what my parents had done to me was unhealthy and wrong. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a critical perspective. Yeah, you're going through all this, and the cumulative effect is that you feel like you're a failure somehow. Yes. And your life becomes more and more self-destructive. Yes. I, like I said, I, I just assumed there was something wrong with me. And, you know, there's this concept in my community of the evil inclination and the good inclination. And I just thought my evil inclination is out of control. And the evil inclination is something one should be able to control. And if you can't, you are evil. And so it was very much, I felt like I was failing myself. I was failing my family. I was failing God. I really thought this is all my fault. At a certain point, you decided okay, fine, if I am an outcast from this religious community, I will embrace the secular life. I will go to college, mm -hmm. which for your family was a first. Mm -hmm. But that in itself wasn't enough to pull you back and, and save you. I mean, it was, an, it was a very crucial step, it sounds yes. like, but it was not an instant cure, let's say. Right. My world disappeared. And I don't think a teenage girl or a girl in her young 20s, especially one as ill-equipped as I was to lead a life, this kind of life, can rebuild a whole world. I mean, I'm 31, almost 32. I'm still putting my world back together. It's, it's like I think almost any refugee who leaves a devastating, war-torn society. Like, if your world disappears, it's it, it, can one human being really construct everything? There's a reason we live in families and cities and communities. College was definitely a huge step up. It definitely empowered me. It was a triumph. It definitely defined, defined me and changed me. But no, it was not enough to save me at all. How would you describe the point at which you hit bottom? So the point that I hit rock bottom that I describe in the book is, you know, the book is a lot about sex and sexuality, which I think is really important for any coming-of-age story, but particularly for me, given how sexuality was treated growing up and the experiences I had afterwards. So I had this really awful experience of thinking that I was going to get control of my life by becoming a prostitute, basically. That did not go well. <laughs> And it obviously did not help me gain control of my life. It was, I mean, obviously just a very devastating experience. It was devastating because that kind of experience is. It was devastating because I, I felt like this was my only option left. And I had failed at this too. And yeah, it was, it was a pretty awful thing. And, you know, I talk about, I think the one moment that really stands out as the worst is when I was having this experience with this guy I met on Craigslist. Um, an attempt to become a prostitute. And we were having sex, which was very unpleasant for me. And he asked me to tell him that I loved him. And that, for me, just really was such a devastating moment. Sex had become so many things for me, and I was willing to take a lot of risks and willing to use it as a currency to live in the world. But love, which I didn't have probably any love really in my life at that point and hadn't for a long time, felt sacred to me. And to have him ask me to say that to him, which I eventually did, it felt like such a betrayal of myself. And um, when I think about this story, that was really the lowest point. The sex also feels like, in your account, almost a kind of self-medication 
mm-hmm. in terms of what you were dealing with. And you, you also talk explicitly about cutting, mm-hmm. which you did for a period of time, as a form of managing your emotional pain and channeling it into ways that, although self-destructive, became at least, well, I don't want to say became bearable for you because obviously they do, they weren't. Right. I think it's like anything like that, any sort of self-destructive self-medication, like alcoholism or drug abuse. Like we engage in these behaviors because they do help us make an unbearable experience bearable for the short term. But I think with all of these in the long term, they end up causing that much more damage. But absolutely, I mean, careless sex and cutting gave me a, a great reprieve. I mean, in sex, I found acknowledgement that I existed, that I mattered to somebody, even on the, only the most superficial level for 60 seconds. And in cutting, I felt alive. I felt release of my emotions that otherwise felt unbearable. People have asked me, like, do I regret what I did? And do I feel badly what I did? And I have a lot of compassion for myself and what I went through. I think anybody in these kind of situations, we use what we have. And I had not been given the tools I needed to survive in the world. And these were the t- tools I stumbled on. And they did serve me well, in the moment, even though obviously in the bigger picture, they did not. And even on the path to recovery, after that rock bottom experience that you talk about, you dropped out of school for a while, and mm-hmm. and then when you're pulling yourself back together, you wind up in a situation where, and again, I don't want to say necessarily that if you had been better equipped to deal with the world, you would have been able to recognize and avoid the situation that you wound up in with your professor. But certainly the extent to which you were Mm ill-equipped made you extremely vulnerable Mm -hmm. to what happened when you went back to college. Yeah, so I got involved in this relationship with a much older married professor at my college. And, you know, I I feel like I'm not going to talk about this the way I'm supposed to talk about it. I don't, I mean, maybe he was sleazy and obviously there were great moral problems with this situation. But but it also seems like it was a healing experience It was a very healing experience. And, you know, I think that a lot of young girls get caught up in these situations or older men look out for these situations. And that's because... Like we were talking about self-destructive behaviors, there's a lot of value in this. You know, for somebody who's my father had really failed me, and my failed relationship with him was so devastating. And I think if I had engaged in a healthy relationship, well, who knows what would have happened, because I didn't. But engaging in this relationship, not only did I have a nice romantic encounter, I also really got to feel what it felt like to have a parent or a pseudo-parent or stand-in parent love me as somebody older than I, an authority figure, and that was enormously healing for me. And got you on the track back to seriously applying yourself to your studies and even going on to graduate school. Yeah. And as you write in the book, you went on to Harvard and got a master's degree in public policy. One of the things that I'm curious about is as you're pursuing a master's degree in that field, let's talk about the point at which you decide that this story is something that you want to turn into a memoir and to to share with the world. So that point was actually when I was maybe 14 and then definitely again when I was 17 when I was going through what I was going through and I couldn't, I can't write a memoir about how many nights I just lay there crying and feeling so devastated and miserable because that would get boring really fast. But there was a lot of that in my life and I felt very alone throughout this journey and I told myself if I get through this and then at a certain point if I survive, if I live, that I will tell this story. You know, it felt like an imperative. I had to. I had felt so ignored and silenced by everybody around me that this promise to myself really gave me hope. If I get out the other side, I'm going to tell the story to the world. I didn't really commit to it seriously. I mean, I kept notes. I kept diaries, partly to this end, thinking one day I'm going to write this book and I want to remember everything that happened. And then 
It was only after graduate school I got a job, a regular job, and that was in the back of my head. I didn't think it was the right time for it. And then I heard about a year after I graduated, I heard about somebody who died, somebody who grew up ultra-Orthodox and left that and had a lot of trauma in his life, and he died in a suicide, and I felt like I... I was really stopped in my path. I felt like, how can I just go on into my life pretending like I'm this regular young professional Harvard grad woman when really I have this terrible history that has been waiting and waiting to be told. And I tell it for myself and I tell it for everybody else who can't tell it because they're dead or doesn't have the opportunity to tell it. You know, I felt like it was time, like I really owed that to myself. And so a year after I graduated, I was like, I'm leaving my job. I'm going to just commit myself to telling this story. And that's what I did. And were there memoirs that you read that showed you a path of, of how to tell the story? Elizabeth Wurzel, I think, Prozac Nation, really did give me permission to think about telling my story in an honest way. That was very influential to me. This idea that I could really speak honestly about what had happened. I think that was sort of a huge thing. And I mean, I've always been an avid reader, so all the books I read kind of always give me ideas. But I think really reading women's memoirs really helped me start to think about that I'm allowed to say these stories. That, and this is something that I really struggle with on a deep emotional level, that I am allowed to have a voice. I'm allowed to speak. Growing up in a world where women did not have public voices, it really is something I still have to actively work on, reminding myself that I have permission to tell my story. And you mentioned that growing up and, and as you were struggling through all this, the feeling of aloneness was such a dominant feeling throughout this experience. And you talk a little bit about this at the end, that it was ironically just as you were on your way to Harvard that you discovered that there was an organization that was there to, to help people like you. Yes. So there's this organization called Footsteps. It's the only organization in the United States that serves formerly ultra-Orthodox Jews. It's this amazing place where people from ultra-Orthodox backgrounds can give each other support. They help people get into school. They provide emotional support. They have social get-togethers. It's an incredible organization, and going there totally changed my life. And I've actually, since gotten very involved in them and joined the board as well as being a member, and I feel so passionately that anybody who's ever in any kind of circumstance like I was where they grew up ultra-Orthodox and are thinking of leaving should know about this place, because if I would have known about this place when I was 17, I think my life would look very, very different than it did. I think that finding people who can support us in our journeys if we have to leave the place we come from is so essential for making successful transitions. The last time that you write about your family as a group encountering them is particularly hurtful mm -hmm. to you. I'm wondering if you know, what kind of contact have you had with them in, in recent years? So I have made a number of attempts to reach out to my parents, and we've picked up, at least gone on talking terms a number of times, and then whenever I try to move the conversation past the weather, all communications end. So, for example, my dad and I started talking a little bit a few years ago, and then right before I gave birth, to my daughter that I mentioned briefly in the book, I reach out to him saying, you know, as I about, I'm about about to become a parent, I would love to reflect on my experiences as a child, and it's making me think about new ideas. And I had, didn't hear from him, and he did not call after I gave birth, and I haven't heard from him since. So it's very touch and go, and whatever there is, whenever it happens, is not very substantial. Most of my siblings don't talk to me, and I have a very cordial relationship with one or two of them. But then, as I mentioned in the book, I have one brother who left ultra-Orthodoxy, and I can't even describe how amazing it is to have lost a family of ten siblings and two parents, and then suddenly have this brother in my life who now has his own family, and it's just such an amazing miracle and gift that I have him, and I'm so grateful for that. So I'm assuming that he's the only one that has really seen or, or read 
the book. Yes, so far. I hadn't read the book. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, one of the big things that I've encountered is, and a lot of people believe ultra orthodoxy encounters claims that one is lying, and so there, it was very important for me to be truthful and accurate in the book, and I did that a number of ways. And one of the ways was having my brother read it and speaking to him and making sure that as much as possible, his, my description of my childhood matched up with his recollections. In terms of the healing process, because so much of what you describe was about being cut loose mm -hmm. into the world without any kind of grounding, or, or at least a very inadequate grounding. At what point did you feel, because I'm assuming you feel now that you're on a fairly even keel, and when did you hit that point? At, at what point in, in, in your recovery? I will say two somewhat contradictory things. So on one hand, I will say that I don't think it was like a light switch being turned on where I saw the light and everything was fine. I think it was a series of steps that built me back up, and it was often two steps forward, one step back, or one step forward, two steps back. So going to college was important, having this relationship with this older professor was important. Going to grad school at Harvard was huge for me, really changing how I viewed myself in the world, getting married, having a child, finding a community, those really transform me. So my life now, when I look at it compared to these experiences, it's, it doesn't even seem like I, it's possible that I could be the same person. So I don't think there's one point, I think it's a number of points, and probably where I leave the readers at the end of the book, having met the man who will become my husband, getting into Harvard, that was really a big, you know, turning a corner. Um, having said that, I will also say that having written a memoir and thought a lot about memoir writing and storytelling, I think we use certain conventions in storytelling where we want to see that arc of crisis and redemption, particularly with women, I think, when women tell their stories for some reason. And there's some truth to that, and it's an interesting storytelling device, but I think it also has, it's not entirely true. I mean, I'll speak just for myself, having gone through the experiences I have, I don't think I'll ever be as straightforward in my experience of the world and myself as somebody who had a good, happy, secure childhood. It's not a story of happily ever after and the princess finds a prince and rides off into the sunset. I think that instead we engage with our demons and re-engage and we get stronger and then something will happen and we'll get weaker and, you know, it's more of a back and forth process than storytelling sometimes allows for. So do you still find yourself negotiating with that yeshivish girl? I do, yeah, and, and with the demons that arose from that experience. I wrote about this this fall, actually, when a woman in our community committed suicide and I talked about that how about how this is still a part of who I am that I have I'm not suicidal at all but I have this awareness of it and I will admit that there are moments in my life when things get very difficult when I'm aware of that as an option perhaps this may be an alcoholic is aware alcohol being out there even after long after recovery is over like you know it's out there and that changes you in a way that somebody who's never experienced that might not really be able to understand or or, or, or they may not see the world in the same way and you talked about stepping away from your career in public policy to work on this story. Now that it's out, I'm curious as to whether this is turning into a permanent path for, or a permanent new direction for you. Yes, it is. I, I'm so in love with learning about writing and the practice of writing and having voice, having the opportunity to think about things and express them. And yeah, I definitely hope to write more books and continue to play with words and, and bringing, you know, I'm also very much defined by my activism and thinking about how to promote the issues I care about through writing. These are very important to me. Well, I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more from Leah Vincent in the future. Her first memoir is Cut Me Loose. It's published by Doubleday, and we've been talking about it here on Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan, and I thank you for listening.
If you are subscribed to us through iTunes, that's great, and thank you for that. If you're not subscribed on iTunes yet, it's very easy to do. And when you are, I hope you might take a moment to rate and review the podcast, which will make it a little bit easier for other folks to find it as well. And I hope you will join us again for another episode soon. Thanks. Take care.